Welcome to Matthew's World of Wine and Drink, an educational podcast dedicated to teaching you all about the world of wine, the different grape varieties, the different regions, and the history and culture of wine. In this episode, we're going to look at soils and the influence of soil on the taste of wine. And this is one of the most contentious and most discussed topics when it comes to wine. Can we actually taste soil in the wine itself? Some would argue, yes, that you can taste slate, limestone, chalk, that these are genuine descriptors of a wine, whereas others would argue that there's no way that you can actually taste any of these things in a wine simply because they are tasteless. The slate does not taste of anything. So how can you taste it in a wine and use it as a descriptor? But that connection between soil and a wine is something that people just can't resist talking about because there is that obvious and direct connection because um, the vine grows in soils. So there is that logical conclusion that the vine must take up flavours from the soil, which we can taste in the wine. And this has all come to a head recently because a geologist called Alex Maltman has published a book called Vineyards, Rocks and Soils, The Wine Lover's Guide to Geology, in which he argues that it is impossible to taste the soil and the minerals and the nutrients in a wine because they are tasteless. And not just that, but because the vine does not directly take up any of those potential aromas anyway. The process is much more complex than that literal association. And this does point to how we taste wine. When we're using descriptors, where are these descriptors coming from? Because when we describe a wine as having aromas of cinnamon, for example, clearly there's no cinnamon in that wine. It has not been artificially added. It's something that we are talking about metaphorically or figuratively. But cinnamon does actually taste of something, so it makes sense to um, detect that aroma and to describe it as such, whereas rocks and minerals and soils do not actually taste of anything. So how do we describe these sensations? What are people actually saying when they use these terms? And minerality is one of those terms which is perhaps the most controversial because many people use it in many different ways. No one's actually sure what minerality means and what minerality is. The best description of minerality I've heard came from a winemaker from Burgundy. And she recalled that when she was six years old, she was in the vineyard with her father and she asked him, minerality, what is this word? What does it mean? I don't understand it. And he said, pick up that stone. And she did. Now lick it. And she did. And he said, that is what minerality is. But of course, if you've ever licked a stone, you know that it tastes of nothing. What it is instead is that really dry sensation on your mouth, which is perhaps what people are referring to as minerality, that really drying acidity that almost gives the wine a tannic structure, if you like. But how we convert that into language can be quite difficult. And let's look at the makeup of a vineyard and all the different types of soil and what it means when we describe limestone soil and chalk soil and slate soils and what effect they have on the growing conditions for a vine and what the relationship might be between the soil and the wine itself. So the land is divided into three sections. You have the bedrock, which is which is the base. And this is the, um, the tough um, rock, which won't um, be moved by erosion. And that forms the base of the land. Some vines might access the bedrock. It has fissures in it. Above the bedrock is the subsoil, and subsoil can't actually support any growth. On its own, it's not enough to support growth. What's most important is the topsoil. And the vines will um, dig through the topsoil with their roots and go into the subsoil for extra water and maybe some extra nutrients. But it's the topsoil which is really giving life because this is where the nutrients are found. And this soil is alive, it has organic matter, and it has humus. And humus is what converts the insoluble minerals 
which are found in the soil into nutrients which vines can access. So minerals and nutrients are different things, even though they might have the same name. And most of these minerals are insoluble, so the vine cannot access them. And the humus converts them into soluble uh, matter, which the vines can access. Vines don't need many nutrients, but they are nevertheless important because they do need some. So different nutrients, uh, there's nitrogen, uh, which nitrogen is in the air something that we breathe, but it can't be accessed through the air. The way that vines get nitrogen is that bacteria takes nitrogen from the air and converts it into gas, which other bacteria access through the humus, turning it into a soluble nitrate, which the vine can access. And then there's phosphorus, which vines also access through its soluble form, even though it's in the rocks and soils. Sulfur, often added artificially, also um, available in humus in its soluble form. Potassium is what vines actually need the most, and some soils and rocks might be low in potassium, so that that's probably the one nutrient that, um, that can be an issue. Calcium is widespread. Magnesium is quite common, especially in volcanic rocks. And then also iron, which is the most visual of all these uh, minerals. It's very widespread and it makes rocks red, but it is hard for vines to access. In alkaline soils, it's insoluble, and chlorosis becomes a problem in limestone soils because they find it difficult to access the iron. So those neat nutrients are coming from minerals, and minerals are compounds of chemical elements. When they bind together, they become a rock. So different types of minerals include carbon, which is a dark colour. If there's graphite in it, it gives it more colour. Um, graphite is another aroma which people often use to describe a wine, but graphite, again, is tasteless. What you're actually getting, and people will also use aromas like pencil shavings or pencil lead, is coming from um, sesquiterpenes which are found in the cedar wood. That's actually where those aromas are coming from. So again, graphite isn't the most precise term. Cedar wood would be a much better term. And then um, the minerals include sulfur, iron, which has the red color, and then hematite, which is um, a red powder, which is found in iron-rich limestone soils such as terra rossa. And there's a couple of different types of minerals. Calcite is a combination of carbon and calcium, and these are found in calcareous soils and then siliceous minerals are combinations of silicon and oxygen. An example of that would be granite. So those minerals, when they bind together, as I said, form rocks. And there are different types of rocks which have been formed in different ways. There's igneous rocks, sedimentary and metamorphic. So an igneous rock is one which has solidified after melting. So thinking of a volcanic eruption, the lava coming out and then melting to form a rock. This may also happen underground as well. Examples of igneous rocks include granite and basalt. Then sedimentary rocks are ones which have been formed through weathering and erosion. And most vineyards have underlying sedimentary rocks and soils. And these um, may have been moved by water, in which case, um, if it's by a river, it's called an alluvium. And if it's by the sea, it's called marine. And examples include limestone, sandstone, and shale. And those underlying soils um, may be formed of clay, which is very fine-grained, silt, which is a bit more like flour, lurse, which is silt that's been deposited from moving air, which is porous and permeable, sand, and then gravel, which has the, has the greatest drainage of all those soils. Perhaps the most famous of the sedimentary rocks is limestone, which is a calcite rock, which has been formed from weathering, because it weathers quite easily, limestone, has good drainage, low in acidity, and always rich in fossils. Two types of soils which are often confused are limestone and chalk. 
Chalk is a subset of limestone. So it is a type of limestone, but limestone is not chalk. The two are different things. Chalk is uh, more porous, and it has minute fragments of fossilised plankton in it. Another uh, type of limestone soil is marl, which is fine-grained and a 50-50 limestone and mudstone. And then there are metamorphic rocks, which have been pushed and weighed down by sediment and then warmed by the earth, remembering that the earth gets warmer as it goes deeper. And examples of metamorphic rock include slate, schist, gneiss, and also marble, not something we associate with wine, a very important rock for building. Slate is when the rocks split. It's a very porous uh, type of rock, and it's also insoluble, which means that it's tasteless, has good drainage, but it's quite a cohesive uh, rock, so it really gives the, the vineyard a compact structure. And this can be very important in somewhere like Germany, where there's lots of slate soils and the steep slopes, making sure that the vineyard is stable. And it's also important in Germany because it radiates warmth, which can help ripening, and also reflect light as well. Again, important for ripening in a cool climate. In Germany, winemakers can make a big fuss about the different coloured slates, which produce different styles of wine. Those different colours are coming from carbon. And quite what effect that has on the vine is open to debate, something that's still being researched and discussed. But the different colours probably reflect um, light and radiate heat in different ways, which can uh, change the ripening conditions, which then, of course, changes the, the structure of the wine. Very similar to slate is schist, and this is buried slate that won't break as easily, and it can be quite hard to differentiate. Then there's nice, something that can be quite difficult to pronounce, because it's spelled G-N-E-I-S-S, -S, but it's pronounced nice. And this is buried deeper, it's coarse-grained, and there are different types of gneiss depending on how the rock has been formed. Paranice was originally sedimentary before um, being metamorphosed into what it is now. And orthognice is originally igneous rock. And the winery Domaine de la Coupe in Muscadet in the Loire Valley does produce different uh, wines from different soil types and put the soil on the label. Nice and orthognice being two examples. Quite what difference that makes to the wine is open to discussion. What I feel to be the most important effect on the wine from soil is actually erosion. How the vineyard is formed and where it's located. Is it on a slope? What's the aspect? What's the elevation? Is it near a river or a lake? All this formation of a million years changes the nature of the vineyard and that in itself influences the taste of the wine. And it's that indirect effect which I think is most important. So erosion has created plateau and basins, it's the movement of particles, the bedrock itself is resistant, it's what's above the bedrock which has moved through erosion and through weathering and also through the formation of rivers and valleys. And so the river will fall and push its way through the land and move in different directions which again changes the shape of the land around it and also changes the nature of the, the soils and the rocks as well depending on what it deposits and where. So an example of uh, a river and a valley is um, Napa Valley, which is, which is a narrow valley, so it's a quite a vivid expression of uh, the relationship between the river, the valley, and the mountains. So Napa River flows through the valley, it's quite a small river, going out into San Pablo Bay. But as it does so, that river deposits soils. These are the alluvial soils right next to the river. And then 
Between the river and the mountains is the valley, and these are the alluvial fans, and in Napa they're called benches, but alluvial fan is the correct term. And these will have soils from the river, but they'll also have soils which have fallen down from the mountain, from the top to the bottom. And so the older soils will actually be at the bottom, and the younger soils at the top. A different, more dramatic um, example would be Germany, the river terraces of the Rhine, or in Austria, the terraces of the, um, of the Danube, in Wachau, for instance. And then, of course, you also have hill slopes as well. So these, these have all been formed by erosion, um, the soils falling down from the top of the, the mountain or the hill down to the bottom, and that changes the, the path of the river as well and pushes it in different directions. And this is all um, very important for vineyards because it affects aspect, affects elevation, affects exposure, and changes the ripening conditions, which can change dramatically from vineyard to vineyard, because nothing's just straight and flat. And this changes the relationship between the vines and sunshine. And sunshine, of course, is extremely important for um, vines, so that they can actually live and produce. Uh, most of the sunshine will be absorbed by soil, but the proportion that is reflected back is called albedo. A-L-B-E-D-O. And this is measured in percentages. If it's 0% albedo, then all the sunshine is absorbed. That's going to be very unlikely. If it's 100% albedo, then it's all reflected. But in most cases, most soils are below 50%. And the paler the soil, the more reflection there is going to be. And so quartz sand soils can be up to 43% reflection. Granite sands, 35%. Calcareous soils, 30 to 35%. Basalt, 10%. So that's a much darker soil, so it's going to reflect much less sunshine. And if you want to decrease how much reflection there is, then tilling the land and covering um, the land with crops will decrease that reflection. And that reflection is through the soils, but it can also be through water as well. And so the water effect from a river or a lake can be extremely important, and that's usually at the end of the day. When the sunshine is at a lower angle, the more light will be reflected. But sunshine also provides warmth, and the less light that is reflected, then the soil will be warmer. So we have to uh, differentiate between light and warmth, because soil cannot reflect sunshine and warm the vines in similar amounts. The more it reflects sunshine, the less it warms. There's a difference between light and warmth. So pale limestone soils reflect sunlight, and these may produce leaner, more elegant wines, whereas dark slate soils retain their warmth to produce fuller wines. So there's a different effect uh, from um, the soils according to the light that they reflect and the heat that they retain. Heat capacity, we talk about high heat capacity, where a soil is slow to warm, but it stores more heat and loses it slowly. An example of that would be basalt, which is a dark soil. We also talk about conductivity, which is different, because that conducts the heat down to the roots. Again, dark soils will uh, conduct quite a lot of heat. It can be down to a metre below the surface. An example of where this is important is R, which has dark, slate, basalt, grey, wacky soils. And R is very far north in Germany. It's one of the most northerly wine regions in the world, even further north than Champagne, for instance, and yet produces high-quality Pinot Noir, and the soils must be important in that. Water, extremely important. It has twice the heat capacity of rock, but it has lower conductivity. And so irrigating before frost can be important because it wets the soil, which will take in the warmth, but then slowly release it at night to stop the frost falling. But one thing to remember in all of this is that only the lowest parts of the vines are affected uh, by any warmth coming up from the soil. So training is important if the vineyard wants to take advantage of that. And then one final thing is the difference between an acid and an alkaline soil. 
So it's not actually the soil which has acidity or lacks acidity, it's the soil water. Some so, so some soil waters will be high in acidity, others will be lower. For vines, anything between 5.5 and 7 pH is where the vines are at the perfect balance of vigour. So it's probably not that important, but there are some variations. Chardonnay likes a pH of 7, it's quite neutral. Gamay and Riesling, pH of 6. And then there are some soil types which are quite low in acidity, um, carbonate soils. So, for example, calcareous rocks, Puy Frise, has a pH of over 7. Pazarobles can be as high as 10, so very low in acidity. And that becomes an issue because get, getting access to nutrients can be extremely difficult with a low pH. So to conclude, what effect does soil have on wine? Well, clearly quite a lot. The makeup of the vineyard, the subsoil, the topsoil, the fertility, access to water is extremely important, perhaps the most important effect. The colour of the soils can have an effect on sunlight and temperature. Rivers and lakes can also have an effect and they've been pushed and uh, formed by erosion and the movement of soil. Access to nutrients, not too important, but is necessary. But what's also important is um, the microclimate and the mesoclimates. The mesoclimates, the, the local climates, and that's going to be formed according to erosion, movement, uh, movement of rocks, for instance, and slopes, etc. Whereas the microclimate is the position of the grape bunches on the vine. And so that can have an effect within a vineyard how the bunches are positioned, how the vine is positioned, can affect the style and character of the wine with um, temperature, airflow, the intensity of the sunlight, any humidity. And that's really where terroir can come in, just where the vine is positioned, where the vineyard is positioned in relation to others. So it's not necessarily that direct effect from the soil, it's the overall environment that the soil has created over millions of years. So how do we taste that directly in a wine? Well, it's the differences between one vineyard and another, but I don't think it's the differences directly between different soils. It's much more complex than that, and also much more fascinating. So thank you for listening. This is Matthew, and this has been Matthew's World of Wine and Drink.